Hello everyone, welcome back to our series on Survey of Theology. Uh, this is going to be lesson number eight. And today we are going to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit, His Advent. And uh, we are also going to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit, His Regeneration. So we're going to hit those two topics uh, in this lesson. And just a reminder, again, this is, that this is a survey of theology, and as a survey, I'm touching on these doctrines lightly, so we're not really digging too deeply into this, and there's a temptation for me to want to do that, to get into the particulars and flesh a lot of other things out. But again, we're just we're introducing uh, these, uh, these theological subjects. And of course, being a biblicist, I uh, will always chase down uh, relevant passages because when we talk about what we believe, knowing the scripture uh, gives us the reason for why <laughs> we believe. I often run into some believers who can give me the what, but not the why. And, uh, and so one of the reasons for going to the scripture as much as I do is to give the why. It's just simply to point out that the things that are being taught here are derived from the Scripture and derived based on a plain reading of the text, just a straight, very straightforward reading. And of course, if the plain sense makes good sense, then we're not going to seek any other sense. So we're just going to take it in its normal, uh, straightforward meaning. Of course, one of the other points that, uh, that I've brought up in past lessons is that we always want to interpret the Bible from the time and the culture within which it was written, understanding who the author was, the audience, what was going on historically, culturally, uh, what's going on within the text. And of course, behind that, we understand that the Holy Spirit is the divine author behind every human author. And so even though the Bible was written by roughly 40 men, uh, spanning a period of approximately 1,500 years, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, written primarily in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, and these uh, men came from different walks of life. Uh, some were educated. Moses was very well educated. Paul was very well educated. Others were not. Peter was not. Uh, but nonetheless, God superintended them in such a way that without forfeiting their personality, their personal choice of words or literary style, in the end, what they wrote was in fact exactly what God intended. So that in that sense, it becomes not just the word of man, it in fact becomes the word of God. And so it gives us divine viewpoint, it gives us glimpses into realities that we could never know things pertaining to God, which is what we've been discussing in this uh, uh, first series of lessons. Uh, but then also we're going to look at things of an eschatological nature, things pertaining to prophecy. And roughly 25% of the Bible was prophecy at the time that it was given. And uh, we will look at future events, because prophecy fits into fulfilled prophecy and unfulfilled prophecy. And so we're going to look at things that relate to future events from the time in which we live, things pertaining to the rapture, the rise of the Antichrist. Uh, we're going to see uh, the period of the tribulation, uh, the time of the second coming of Christ, his judgments. We're going to see the millennial kingdom, and we're also going to look at the eternal state. Uh, we're going to look at angels. Uh, we're going to consider angelology. So we're going to look at, you know, uh, who are the angels? 
what is their composition. Uh, we're going to discuss their personalities. We're going to see angels broken into two groups. Uh, we're going to see holy elect angels and fallen angels. We're going to see Satan. So the point is, you know, the Bible gives us these glimpses into realities that we can never know, except that God has spoken. And what he has spoken has been inscripturated. And so to go to the Word of God is to understand things that, again, we could not know, again, except that God has spoken, that he has revealed these things. So being a biblicist, I'm always uh, wanting to go back to the text and say, what does the text say? Um, so let's get back to our study notes here. And this is going to be lesson number 15. And again, we're we're using major Bible themes by Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer and Dr. John Wolverd as uh, the main outline for this series of lectures. Uh, but we're also, I'm also going to be quoting from other Bible teachers, as you've already seen in this series of lessons. Uh, so today we're going to talk about God the Holy Spirit. Last time we talked about his uh, personality. And now we're going to move into his advent, his advent. And, and this refers to his coming into the world. Now, there is a special sense in which God, the Holy Spirit, came into the world in order to begin a special ministry. Now, just as God, the Son, came into the world at a point in time nearly 2,000 years ago at the time of the virgin conception, he came into the world and he walked among uh, people. And then uh, roughly about the age of 30, uh, maybe a little bit older, but about that time, he began a ministry that went for about three and a half years. And then his earthly ministry during the time of the hypostatic union, when he was on the earth, he ascended into heaven, which is where he's at right now, engaging in his uh, priestly ministry, his advocating ministry, and so on. Well, just as that is true of Jesus, this is true also of the Holy Spirit, that as God, he's omnipresent, which means he's equally and fully everywhere all the time. But there is a special sense in which the Spirit came into the world, and he's doing something today that is not true in the past. And so there is a special coming of the Holy Spirit into the world. Now, according to Dr. Chafer, and I'm quoting him here, he says, quote, the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world on the day of Pentecost must be seen in relationship to his work um, in previous dispensations. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was in the world as the omnipresent God, yet he is said to come into the world on the day of Pentecost. During the present age, he is said to remain in the world but will depart out of the world in the same sense as he came on the day of Pentecost. Uh, so when the rapture of the church occurs, in order to under... And so his departure is going to happen. He basically says, when the rapture of the church occurs. And then he goes on, he says, in order to understand this truth of the Holy Spirit, very various aspects of the Spirit's relationship to the world should be considered, end quote. So talking about the Holy Spirit during the life of Christ on earth... Now, the following points are taken directly from Major Bible Themes, page 92, and I've just uh, lifted it out and put it directly into my notes. So, point number one, in relation to Christ, the Spirit was the generating power by which the God-man was formed in the virgin's womb. So, the Holy Spirit, he says here, was the generating power uh, that made this happen, that the Spirit would come upon Mary in such a way that he would supernaturally... 
uh, bring about the hypostatic union uh, between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So, again, in relation to Christ, the Spirit was the regenerating power by which the God-man was formed in the virgin's womb. The Spirit is also descending in the form of a dove upon Christ at the time of his baptism. And if you remember that uh, in the Gospels, uh, you have the Spirit, you have you have the Father speaking from heaven, you have the Spirit descending uh, in the form of a dove, and then you have Christ upon the earth. So you have all three members of the Godhead present, but you have this special uh, manifestation of the Spirit. And then uh, lastly here, and again it is revealed that it was only through the eternal Spirit that Christ offered himself up uh, to God. And Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? And so it was through the Spirit of God that he offered himself up to God. And then the second point is that the relation of the Spirit to men during the earthly ministry of Christ was progressive. Christ first gave assurance to his disciples that they might receive the Spirit by asking, and that is in Luke eleven thirteen. He says, If you then, uh, knowing how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So apparently this was offered to the disciples. Now one of the things that we're going to see is that when one looks at the Old Testament, uh, the Spirit of God only came upon a select few persons. And one can think of during the time of the Mosaic Law, where the Spirit came upon uh, prophets, priests, artisans, uh, you know, those just upon some of the judges. So it only came upon a few select persons and could be taken, not uh, because they lost salvation, that doesn't happen, but was taken as a means of divine discipline. And you can think of, uh, in, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, First uh, Samuel sixteen fourteen through sixteen, where the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and it says, and an evil spirit from the Lord was sent to terrorize him as a means of divine discipline. And so, but the spirit leaving him does not mean loss of salvation; it just means that he lost the the spirit and therefore the supernatural ability to govern the nation. So he was left with the burden of responsibility minus the power to be able to do so. And again, this was a form of divine discipline. But here we have this example where the Spirit, uh, where he says, um, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, we don't have anything recorded uh, during uh, the time of the ministry of Christ where anybody actually took advantage of this, to where his disciples actually took advantage of this. So let's look at some characteristics. Let's look at the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And we'll see the work of the Holy Spirit at salvation. At salvation. And this is uh, the first one is going to be regeneration. Regeneration. And in uh, John 3, uh, 3 through 6, Jesus answered and said to him, this is, he's talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, uh, now, born again here is ganao uh, uh, anothen. And uh, anothen could be taken as born again. It could also be translated as born from above. 
of being from the source of, of heaven. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, uh, he, he's wrestling with this, and you, you feel it in uh, verse 4. It says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And he's wrestling with it, but he's thinking about physical birth. He's not thinking about spiritual birth. He's thinking about physical birth. Uh, and Jesus makes it clear to him that there must be two births that occur. In verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, water here is physical birth. Uh, we talk about a woman's water breaking when the amniotic fluid uh, comes out. But here we're talking about physical birth, because that's what Nicodemus was talking about. He was talking about entering back into his mother's womb. And now Jesus says, look, he says, look, he says, unless one is born of water, that's physical birth. Uh, baptism is not here. I know that this has been used by some Church of Christ members, and uh, baptism is not within a thousand miles of this verse. Uh, just because there's water present uh, doesn't mean that baptism is implied. And by the way, not all baptisms are wet. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, I think it's verse 11, uh, John gives three baptisms. He talks about uh, the baptism, uh, John's baptism, but then he talks about the one who comes after him, Jesus, who will baptize in the Spirit and in fire. Well, you can't get any drier than fire, <laughs> so there is a baptism of fire. But anyway, I digress. He says, unless one is born of the Spirit, a a born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you have to have human life, and then you have to have new life. Now, to demonstrate and to really drive the point that here he's talking about physical birth and spiritual birth, the next verse is just, it could not be clearer. He says, that which is born of the what? The flesh is flesh. There's human life. There's, there's, there's physical life. There's human life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So you have to connect the water with being born of the flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he's saying the same thing here. So what he says in verse 5 with regard to water and the spirit, he says here again with regard to flesh and the spirit. Uh, and then he says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So this being born again means that we have new life, new life. In fact, over in First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, I think it's verse 3 and 23, uh, he uses similar language, that we must be born again. So when one turns to faith in Christ, a number of things happen. Uh, but one of the things that happens is that we are born again. We are given new life and a new nature. Now, the old sin nature is not eradicated, but we are given a new nature that is in Christ, and so we are born again. Not only that, but the Spirit of God indwells us. Indwells us. In fact, this was prophesied uh, in, um, <clears throat> in John chapter 14 when Jesus was in the upper room. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, uh, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. And notice the use of the prepositional phrase here, will be in you. You see, that was an innovation. That was, that was something new. 
Of course, you think of passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple and the Holy Spirit uh, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who is in you? Now, in the Old Testament, there was a physical temple in Jerusalem where people would go to worship. Well, that temple's destroyed, and in the dispensation of the church age, our body is the temple of the Lord. Our body is the temple of the Lord. Not only that, but we have the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word baptize uh, translates the verb baptizo. We see the noun form baptismos as well as the other form of the verb bapto, which means to dip or to immerse. But the idea of baptism, really the idea that you should think of is to identify to identify one thing with another. Uh, in uh, ancient Greek culture, uh, the Spartans, uh, who were the neighbors and sometimes the adversaries of the Athenians, the Spartans, a very militaristic uh, group of Greeks, uh, used to, baptizo, used to take their spears and dip them into a bucket of pig's blood. And what they were doing was they were identifying their weapons of war with blood. They were making them battle ready. So they were identifying them with, with blood and with, with combat. And, and so the idea of baptism is to be identified with. And in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen it says, For by one spirit uh, we were all baptized or identified or placed into one body. Now, this is a spirit baptism. There's not water here. This is, a, this is a dry baptism that is performed by the Spirit in which we were placed into the body of Christ. And again, I, I use the term dry baptism because there are some dry baptisms. Again, the baptism of fire. Uh, I think it's Mark 10. He talks about the baptism of the cross. Uh, that's, that's a dry baptism. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about the baptism being baptized into Moses. And remember that when Moses and the Israelites went through the dry sea, nobody got, or went through the Red Sea, nobody got wet. They went through on dry land. In fact, the only people that got wet was Pharaoh and his Egyptian army, and that wasn't a benefit to them. That didn't help them. <laughs> but this is a spirit baptism, and we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So we were all baptized into the body of Christ at the same time. Well, what time was that? At the moment of faith in Christ. At the moment of faith in Christ, uh, uh, God, the Holy Spirit, takes you and places you into the body of Christ. Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so here he's talking about well, look at the preceding verse. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So when he talks about being baptized here into Christ, he's talking about spirit baptism. Spirit baptism. The Spirit also seals us. In fact, the Spirit is himself the seal. Uh, Paul writes, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. And the word sealed translates the Greek verb sfragizo. Uh, sfragizo, that's a tough word to say. Uh, but it means that the Holy Spirit is himself the seal given to us uh, 
that secures our salvation uh, until the day of redemption. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit has uh, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places uh, in Christ. And he provides us with spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now are there are variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And we all have different ministries. You know, I teach at a nearby church, at Tyndale Bible Church. I also teach at a federal prison near my home and have been working in jail and prison ministry for uh, probably 16, 17 years now. But I also minister to people I work with, uh, with whom I share scripture. And I have my blog where I write articles. I have my podcast. I have my video channels. Uh, I teach at the school, at the seminary. So we all have a, there are a variety of ministries. Some people have more of an evangelistic ministry. Some people work with widows. Some people work with homeless. I mean, we all are called to different ministries. But it's the same spirit. And he says in verse 6, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And so the gifting of the Holy Spirit is for the common good of everybody within the body of Christ. Uh, for the common good of everybody within the body of Christ. For to one is given the word of wisdom and through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, and to another uh, faith, and so on. So you have these gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit to believers within the body of Christ, uh, and again for the building up of the body of Christ, for the edification. Now after salvation, now that's what happens at salvation. So let's talk about what happens after salvation, after salvation. So after salvation, there is uh, teaching through the Word and glorifying Jesus. In uh, John 16, Jesus says, here of the Spirit, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now that's interesting to me. Let me pause for a moment there, because there are things that God wants to reveal to us, just as there were things that Jesus wanted to reveal to the disciples. He had many more things to say to them. But he said, you cannot bear them now. In other words, <clears throat> you, have to, you have to grow, you have to come to a certain place, and then I will give you that revelation. This is true for us as believers now. Verse 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit also recalls, has a, script, has a ministry to recall Scripture to mind. Again, uh, going back to John 14, 26, which we've hit before, but that's all right. We'll hit it again. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance... Uh, all that I said to you. So he will not only teach all things, teach us all things, but he will bring to our remembrance 
the words of Christ. And so this is part of what the uh, ministry of the Spirit is doing. He's also filling us. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine. Uh, The Bible doesn't condemn drinking, uh, but the Bible does condemn drunkenness. And, uh, and I don't have a problem with drinking. I personally don't drink uh, because I don't want to open that door. Uh, but there are some, some who do. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is something that I will unpack in, in greater detail uh, when we move into some future lessons. But the term filled here uh, translates the Greek verb plerao, Plerao in the form it's in the form of the Greek in the New Testament it's plerousthe, and the verb is a present passive imperative. Present tense is ongoing action, uh, which means that we are to keep on being filled with the Spirit. The passive voice means the subject receives the action of the verb. In other words, we are to allow the Spirit to fill us. And to fill means that, not that we have more of the Spirit at one time and less at another. It's really the idea that the Spirit has more of us. We might say that it is the Spirit fulfilling in us all that He desires. might be a, a better way to understand that. But it's also in the imperative mood, which means it is a command. And uh, whenever we find verbs in the imperative mood, it always assumes at least three things. It assumes um, intellectual capacity, that we understand the directive. It assumes volitional capacity, that we can obey the directive. And it assumes present and or future opportunity, because we're not um, commanded. It, It never speaks to past action, because you can't command past action. So uh, we are uh, commanded to be empower- to be filled with the Spirit, which means the empowering and guiding ministry of the Spirit. Now there is also the sustaining of a spiritual walk. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit. Now the word walk translates the Greek verb peripateo, peripateo, which... Uh, here, when he's talking about the walk, he's talking about our life, how we live out uh, our walk with God. So when he says walk by the Spirit, it's literally to walk in step with the Spirit as the Spirit leads, and also by means of the Spirit, because the Spirit is going to empower us. And the Spirit also illumines our minds and makes Scripture understandable. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit uh, who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, But in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts which with spiritual words. So I find it's interesting that spiritual truth can be communicated. He says, uh, which things we also speak. Laleo. Going back a little bit here to even uh, verse 6. Paul says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So there is, uh, there's spiritual truth that can be communicated. 
Now, only the person who has the Holy Spirit uh, dwelling within them and who has a new nature will not only accept the things of God, but also has a greater capacity to understand the things of God. Now, the the unbeliever, uh, and this is something that, again, I will unpack later, he's called the natural man or the sukikos man. He's the soulish man. And this is the person who does not accept the things of God. From dekomai, it means the verb to receive. He does not receive the things of God. And what we have here is we have negative volition on display. So the unbeliever who is operating by negative volition uh, refuses uh, to accept the things of the Spirit of God. And then once he gets to a certain point of, of continuing that, that negative decision, it gets to a point of recalcitrance, of hard-heartedness, to where he, he moves from saying no uh, to the ministry of the Spirit. You know, Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, Stephen talks about this in Acts 7, about those who resist the Spirit. He says, you keep on resisting uh, the Spirit of God. Well, that happens, and there comes a point of recalcitrance. And so at, at a certain point, he says, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or evaluated. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So there is this illuminating work of the Spirit in which he makes Scripture understandable. Now, let's move on to the next one here, and let's uh, focus particularly on uh, his regeneration, his regenerating work. So we'll, we'll focus uh, particularly on that. Now, regeneration is a fundamental teaching in the doctrine of salvation. It is a work of God on behalf of man and in man. Now, the word regeneration uh, here uh, appears twice in the Scripture. And the word regeneration... Uh, polygenesia, polygenesia is the Greek word. Uh, it really only occurs twice in Scripture. Here in Matthew 19:28, it refers to the regeneration of the earth at the time of the millennial kingdom, when Christ is establishing his millennial kingdom. And then in Titus 3:5, where it says that he saved us, and salvation is always one way. It's not we participated in it. It's not that we saved ourselves. It's not that we helped God. It's that he saved us. Not, by, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So in both places, the uh, Greek word that is used is uh, polygenesia, which means, and here I'm citing from uh, Badag, which is the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, and other uh, early Christian literature. And, and this is, a lexicon is just a dictionary. Now, it's an expensive dictionary, but and a very good dictionary, but it is still just a dictionary. It's very helpful. But they define uh, polygenesia as the state of being renewed, the experience of a complete change of life, rebirth of a redeemed person. Now, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer notes... Uh, and here I'm quoting, uh, citing from major Bible themes. He says, quote, On the basis of this text, that is Titus 3.5, the word regeneration has been chosen by theologians to express the concept of new life, new birth, spiritual resurrection, 
the new creation and in general a reference to the new uh, supernatural life that believers receive as sons of God. In the history of the church, the term has not always had accurate usage, but properly understood, it means the origination of the eternal life, which comes into the believer in Christ at the moment of faith, the instantaneous change from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life, end quote. So, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, this is accomplished by God for those who believe in Christ as Savior. Now, though God the Father and God the Son are involved in our new life, that's true. Both are involved. Scripture directs us uh, to view it also as a work of God the Holy Spirit. And, of course, John 3 and Titus 3 uh, make that very clear. And let's talk about eternal life, which is imparted uh, by regeneration, eternal life. So the believer who trusts in Jesus as Savior is given eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 10.28, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 20, 31. John has written his gospel uh, to this end. He says, but these, that is these miracles that John records, the seven miracles that John records in the gospel of John, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name that you may have life in his name. So the believer who trusts in Jesus as Savior is given eternal life. This also means the lost person is transferred from a place of spiritual death to a place of spiritual life. And so we see this like in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin here. And death means separation. It does not mean cessation. It means separation. Uh, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit of the, of, the knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, it was told them that in the day that you eat from it, you will die. Well, when they ate from it, there was a death that occurred. Not a physical death. That came later. But there was a spiritual death. And spiritual death means separation, separation from God in time. That's spiritual death. The second death is separation from God in eternity. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says, And the body shall return to the, to the, to the earth, the dust shall return to the earth from whence it came, and the spirit, the ruach, shall return to God who gave it. So at death there's separation. So when we think of death, we should think of separation, not cessation. So he says, and you were dead, that is separated in your trespasses and sins, and so your sin separated you from God. He says in verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." 
But God, verse 4 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he did something. He says he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. So we have been made alive. And this is, this is something that happens at the moment of salvation. We are given new life, uh, spiritual life. We are regenerated at that moment. And so our regeneration as born-again persons is the foundation. It's the starting point upon which all other Christian experiences are based. And so you have to have that starting point of coming to faith in Christ uh, and trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And at the moment of faith in Christ, again, all of our sins are forgiven, Ephesians 1.7. And salvation is not merely subtraction, it's addition. So it's the subtraction of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, but it's the addition of new life. We are given uh, the gift of eternal life. We are also given the gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.21 also teaches this, and Philippians 3.9 as well. And we are given a spiritual gift, uh, Colossians 1.13 tells us that we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. But it all, all those things happen because of that one thing of being given new life. And so at that, that's the starting point really for, for, for there for all the rest of our Christian experience. Because now we are called to live out the Christian life. We're called to grow up. We are called to advance to spiritual maturity. And this is what God wants from us. He wants us to learn his word that we might live his will. He calls us to learn his word that we might live his will. And you cannot live what you do not know. Knowledge of God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. Again, you cannot live what you do not know. So learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. Now, learning it is no guarantee that you will live it. That's true. Uh, that's why James 1.22, he says, Be ye doers, excuse me, be ye doers of the word, and not merely hearers uh, who delude themselves. So it is possible to be a hearer and not a doer, but... Both aspects of that are essential if we're going to grow up, that we have to learn the Word, and then we have to plug it into life, into our family, into our, into our relationship to our parents, our spouse, our children, our co-workers, our neighbors, uh, all of life. And we take the Word and we apply it to all of life. The more that we learn it, the more that we apply it. And that is uh, our spiritual growth, as we are filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and growing uh, in our relationship with God. But that regeneration is that starting point. So hopefully this has been a helpful lesson to you. And um, uh, we will uh, move into our next lesson. We will talk about uh, God the Holy Spirit and we will focus on his indwelling and sealing. His indwelling and sealing. And I thank you very much and I wish you a good day.